0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome everyone, this is a new um, episode of the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Vogelsanger and I'm your host today. I'm here with Hamza Mouchene, a researcher of the Transnational Institute based in the UK. And we will be talking about his newly published book, Dismantling Green Colonialism and Energy and Climate Justice in the Arab Region. Co-edited by Katie Sandwell. The book was published by Pluto Press last year in 2023, so it is a very new book. In this podcast, we will talk about climate change and neocolonial activities in the Middle Eastern and North African region. To begin with, I want to cite the subtitle of the introduction, which is Just in time, the urgent need for just transition in the Arab region. This is, in my point of view, a very well-written start in this very insightful and well written book. Welcome, Hamza. Very excited to talk to you today and hear more about your book and its background. How are you?
0: Good. I need to forward to our conversation.
1: Thank you. Um, so first of all, I'm interested in hearing more about the book and its background and specifically also about you. Can you maybe introduce yourself? and tell us about how you became a researcher and what made you an activist in climate justice.
0: So uh, my name is Hamza Hamushan. i am originally from Algeria and, and I call myself a researcher and activist. I'm currently the uh, Arab region program coordinator um, at the Transnational Institute, which is a research institution based in Amsterdam. And I work specifically around various issues, uh, including the energy transition, uh, extractivism, environmental and climate justice, food sovereignty, with a focus on North Africa and at the Arab region. And I've been doing that kind of work in terms of research and activism uh, through field works through analysis, through writing through political education um, activities uh in in the region in the North African and Arab region. Uh, so for the last 10 years I have saved now. So that's 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 a little uh, little about me uh in terms of what made me a researcher and activist and I think yeah that's that's a long a long trajectory uh and I think our, our experiences coalesce together to make us who we are. But I can, I can tell you a little bit uh, how, how I came to become a researcher and activist in terms of environmental climate justice. So I did a PhD actually in biology and the environment. Um, and that's how I started getting interested in questions of um, uh, the environment and the intersections between environment and health. But then, during my student years, uh, I was interested also in in activism, civil society activism, yeah. uh, with some uh, Algerian friends in London. We started um, setting up an, an Algerian association for community purposes, uh, to organize cultural activities, and so forth. By then, with the 2010-2011 Arab uprisings in the region, which were historical moments and epochal change at times, um, that inspired us to to set up Algeria Solidarity Campaign and start campaigning for democratizations in, in, in our own country. But that kind of work connected us with other organizations and associations in, in the UK, including environmental and climate justice organizations, especially when there was another uprising in Algeria, which is the anti-fracking uprising in 2014 and 2015, which we followed very closely. We organized the rounds, did some protests here, uh, have written some articles and analysis to um, highlight the resistance that was going on in southern Algeria against the fracking fracking projects at the time. So that led me shift in you know, my field of work for from biology and the environment into more uh, environmental activism uh, so i joined some organizations like platform other mm-hmm. global justice now uh, where we were bringing the issues of human rights abuses and environmental crimes of the fossil fuel industries in various parts of the world and i was um, focusing on, on Algeria, my, my home country. And then that led us to connect, at least led me to connect the dots between questions of democratization, socio-economic justice, but also environmental and climate justice. Um, we launched a book at the World Social Forum back in mm-hmm. 2015. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was aired in, um, in, in Tunis at the time. And the book was specifically on the... Um, coming revolution in in north africa the struggle for climate justice and and then i started uh uh embarking on field research doing field trips Mm -hmm. in various parts of uh, north africa specifically algeria tunisia morocco and i was exploring or let's say looking into social environmental conflicts in extractive sites, either mining, fossil fuels, or or agribusiness, and I, I ended up publishing a few studies on, on extractivism and getting more interested in what is happening at the level of energy and the renewable energy because I saw that the same practices of dispossession, destruction, land grabbing that we see in fossil fuels and mining, we started seeing into renewable energy projects in the, in the region, and um, yeah, that's how how I, I've become a researcher and an activist. And for me, we don't have not disconnect research from activism. We do research, we do analysis in order to change the world for the better, uh, to analyze the dynamics so we can um, achieve you know justice in all its forms.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is very interesting. Um, I'm really impressed. Um, So also, as you write the new book, um, it was not planned to first actually publish a book at the end. So um, how did you end up doing it (laughs) and publishing your work? So um, I think
0: as like any other author, uh, when at, at least in my case, I would say that's Let me focus on Mm -hmm. my case. I didn't just say with Katie, let's let's write this book. Mm -hmm. Let's go and and write this book. No, it was a culmination of uh, various experiences uh, in the region, exchanges with uh, other partners, other comrades, other colleagues, other organizations. It was built on uh, different activities. And events we organize with various partners, not just from the Arab region but beyond. Um, right. and, and in my case, I see it as a logical channel of some of the ideas that I've been I've been focusing on in the last in the last decade, in terms of extractivist practices, in terms of accumulation of dispossession, in terms of social environmental conflicts we've seen in the region, uh, in terms of uh, the move towards renewable projects and the focus into um, uh, export-oriented big mega projects that are geared towards providing the EU with its energy security. So it it seemed that it was important to document the analysis to document a uh, level of exchange with partners with people in the region with activists with scholars um, and bring you know the voices from the region or highlight and center the voices of the region and link it into a kind of a coherent uh, fruit let's say fruit the fruit of all these endeavors and efforts so it, like if we look just at the short term before publishing the book, the previous the previous three years, like we had a pandemic, and we had many, many big events, hmm. but we started we started organizing uh, on Zoom, actually. Really? Uh, and, uh, we organized a few activities where we brought scholars and activists from the region and, and from Europe and from other parts of the world as well from Africa to exchange around what a just position would look like in, in North Africa, the Arab region. And, um so that was, that, that was, you know, the first idea, but that first idea was also inspired by previous work inside TNI, <laughs> because before in 2019, there was a meeting in Amsterdam where various organizations including trade unions, indigenous communities, environmental organizations, met and fleshed out some of the principles of that just transition that we we would like to see in the future. So you could say it's the culmination or the result of all these experiences intersecting with each other and documenting the wealth of knowledge that is being produced by activists and scholars in the fields and we thought now we need to have that collection and we need to have it in various languages. So that book actually is available in four languages so far. So it's English, French, Arabic, and Spanish.
1: Amazing, amazing. Yeah, this is, again, super interesting. Um, and also, the like coming back to the just transition, in the beginning of your book, you talk about this just transition and environmental Orientalism, and to now further dive into your book. So how are these two connected with each other, especially in the Arab region?
0: It's a good question, Um, Sarah, I think it may take some time to flesh it it out and, uh, and show, highlight the connections between environmental Orientalism and a just transition but I feel that first of all, we need to give an idea to to the listeners. What do we mean by just transition and what do we mean by environmental Orientalism before going into uh, the intersection of the connections of these two concepts in the Arab region? So a just transition in general terms, it is a transition from a system that is based on the exploitation of workers and communities, and the destruction of environments, to a more just and sustainable system built on regeneration, repair, respect uh, for nature, but also free of exploitative relationships. And in that sense, this is a revolutionary project. Uh, and it, it doesn't just touch on energy or the environment or climate. It's also about a radical transformation of the socioeconomic structures that generate impoverishment, that generates exploitation, that generates dispossession, and that generate wars. Um, So it's not just about the environment or climate or energy, it's about the whole economy and how do we democratize that the, eco- the current economy that works just for a tiny minority at the expense of the majority. We want a community that works for all, that does not commodify things, that is built on values of justice, dignity, freedom, sustainability, and respect. Um, and just and to achieve that, You need to change the power imbalances at the local, national, regional, and international level. So it's about really radically transforming those power relationships, which means democratization at the local level, which means that the Just Transition Project is an anti colonial and anti imperialist struggle. Uh, it is about class, which means it is an anti-capitalist struggle. It is also a feminist and an anti-racist struggle. So I think these are the main principle for a just transition. The book focuses on, of course, questions of climate and energy, but it touches on this overall picture. Uh, so just, just for the listener uh, to, to get an idea what, what we mean, by a by just transition framework. And the just transition framework needs to put the working people at the heart of that project. Workers cannot be sacrificed in that transition to a better system, or the burden shouldn't be put on them. The wealthiest, the richest, the biggest polluters, the, uh, the most advanced countries, uh, the richest or wealthiest amongst us need to pay more. Uh, in order to, to achieve so that system. So that's just what we mean by just transition. In terms of um, environmental Orientalism, this is actually, um, how can I say, built on the work of Edward Said. Uh, Edward Said wrote a lot on Orientalism, so he wrote to when known a very classic called uh, called Orientalism. And, you know, the Orientalist framework, Orientalism per se, is about the dominant forces in society or the dominant powers of this world, which tends to be, you know, Mm -hmm. the global north or the western powers, the most industrialized nation on earth, tend to misrepresent other peoples, other, their society, their culture, their economic structures uh, in racist, essentialist condescending terms, in order to dominate them, to subjugate them, in order to push forward colonial projects and imperialist designs. Um, that's what Orientalism in general, so it is a kind of racism towards Oriental, oriental people. I uh, represent them as backwards, as alien, as, um, as, as in need of the mission least, the civilized mission or the white man's burden. So this is, this is Orientalism in general terms. When we, say, when we talk about that Orientalism can be reproduced, not just at the level of discourses on culture or politics or, uh, or economy, but also at the level of the environment. And actually Diana Davis has done an amazing work in talking about uh, the British Franco-colonial imaginaries uh, about the environment in the Middle East and North Africa and how the environment there during colonial times was represented as being defective, alien, exotic, are often degraded and in need of repair, improvement, restoration, which would mean that these colonial powers would need to intervene to repair it for their own interests. And usually those invite colonial uh, racist, orientalist environmental narratives have been used to legitimize colonial dominations, have been used to legitimize Plunder and dispossession of people of their land and natural and natural resources, and actually we are seeing the same thing being reproduced right now. These are um, orientalist, uh, deceptive representations of the environment uh, in the region, in terms first of all being degraded; it needs repair, but also advancing other deceptive narratives, like the Sahara is empty, sparsely populated, uh, representing this kind of, you know, El Dorado of cheap, renewable energy for Europe. And and this narrative just obfuscates questions of property, sovereignty, that people live in those areas, what would happen to them when these big projects of renewable energy come. Um, So, in that sense, that environmental Orientalism would represent a challenge for a just transition. So we're not just, you know, challenging neo-colonial or imperialist design on the political and economic level we need to also challenge them at the discursive level, at the way they represent the environment of people, or people in general, and, uh, and how these ploys, discursive ploys, are used to justify land grabs and dispossession, um, the theft of water, uh, the use of resources, and also the externalisation Social ecological forms, and we can maybe come um, come back a little bit to this later, because there are a lot of projects that, like green hydrogen exports project, for example, in North Africa, they would need a lot of water. Hmm. So in a way, you're creating sac- new green sacrifice zones, you're taking away the water from the local people without asking them first if that's that's what that's what they would like uh, they would like to do. So in general. I don't know if I painted um, a clear picture, Sarah, mm-hmm. on, on how you know environmental orientalism is connected to just transition. So just transition need to center the local communities. The local communities know better about the environment and how they should be using their own resources rather than this, you know, big companies or big powers or international financial institutions telling us what to do about our environments and how to better use the resources.
1: Yes, um, no, this was very understandable, I think. Um, And I think it is also connected to other concepts that I found really interesting in your book, um, which are green colonialism and green grabbing. As you say that, um, that these narratives are used in green grabbing, for example, to kind of legitimize projects in renewable energy production. And that are, for example, solar pla- panels or water dams. And um, how did your research in, for example, Morocco, you said and Algeria, um, shed light on that development? Do you have maybe some examples?
0: Yeah, there are not, there are not many examples. You know, we, we thought that the framing of green colonialism um, was very important in our studies. Even, you know, the field work that we've done and the exchange of opinions and, and, and research and what we, we heard from our partners and comrades in, in the region uh colonialism is not is not that yet uh it is um, it resurfaces in various in various ways so you know other um, political and economic domination through so this kind of imbibed or colonial colonial projects so colonialism is still is still well alive some people prefer to use terms like neo-colonialism yeah um, and I use them myself um, to describe the new forms of of, of colonialism, as uh, as it's not like, exactly as it was in the 19th century when uh, Western colonial powers were occupying and controlling directly territories. Others prefer to use, you know, concepts like imperialism. And I think all of these are useful. And I use them myself. Um, I use imperialism, green uh, ecological imperialism, uh, green colonialism, green neocolonialism, and, and all of them has uh, have um, uh, an analytical power, and it we should use them uh, context based. Uh, not everything is uh, colonialism. Not everything is uh, grabbing. So we need to analyze the dynamics case case by case. So. The book documents many examples Sarah about green colonial projects or green colonial, uh, colonial dynamics. So in cases of like Palestine, the golden, the occupied Golden Heights, uh, which 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 is a Syrian territory, and uh, occupied by Israel and Palestine. So Western Zahra, Golden Heights, Palestine, these are clear cases of green colonialism colonial environmental narratives that I mentioned earlier is being used by the settler colonial state of of Israel, has been used since its inception, saying we made the desert bloom. It was all Sahara and empty, and since the inception of this uh, colony, Israeli colony, uh, we made the desert bloom, it became paradise, and we are engaging in renewable energy projects, desalination water, and this is how Manel uh, Shqayr, the Palestinian author in the book, was describing his greenwashing colonialism. And you know, the more Israel trenches its economic relationships, e included in renewable energy and environmental projects, it normalizes its existence, it normalizes its settler colonial settler colonial projects. And that's what Manel described as econormalization. Actually, it's an excellent chapter that I really, really recommend because it sheds a lot of light on these direct colonial dynamics. Western Sahara in Morocco is a similar case, less violent, but it is an occupied territory by the Moroccan monarchy, where um, which is building solar plants and wind farms on occupied land without the approval of you know the local population. Mm-hmm. So these are clearly green colonial projects because it it entrenches Moroccans' domination and power on those territories and creates also links, probably with other countries, if the green electricity is exported, for example, to other West African countries. So these are clear, direct green colonial projects. But then there are the export-oriented projects, that are being pushed by foreign agendas. So they are not coming basically as local priorities, but they are coming from outside, from the European Union, from multinationals, from international financial institutions, uh, from big funders trying to push these projects because they are seeing the region as the El Dorado I described earlier uh, huge surfaces of land, uh, amazing sort of potential, amazing wind potential as well. So why not take the opportunity and build those projects to export energy to Europe? Europe does not have huge surfaces; it is uh, it is a uh, population dense. And then it has its own objectives uh, in terms of reaching, you know, net zero by, I don't know, 2040, 2050, uh, climate targets and so forth. So what these actors, powerful actors are saying, why don't we externalize those projects and put, you know, the responsibility for our energy security and reaching climate targets on others? And for me, that is the main problem with those export-oriented projects, because we need we need to bear in mind one thing: the North African or the Arab region in general is very climate vulnerable, and it is facing huge impacts of climate change right now: Drought, wildfires, recurrent heat waves, uh, huge water poverty. Uh, floodings like we've seen in Libya last year, and that are, you know, creating huge disasters, costly disasters. So the priority for these countries and other countries in the global south should be climate adaptation, should be trying to find other sources of water in terms of water desalination may be changing the agricultural model so it consumes less water and produce for its own needs, rather than virtually export water through exported oranges, citrus fruits, tomatoes, and strawberries and watermelons. So I think these should be the priorities. But it seems that the priorities of the West or the global North in terms of climate mitigation, which means reducing CO2 emissions and moving to renewable energies, are being shifted, you know, through a spatial fix from North to South, saying, ah, these countries should be producing our renewable energies, without even thinking that maybe the, those projects should be filling the gap first in those countries. Maybe they should green their grids first, rather than thinking of, of uh, an export agenda in the first place. But then these projects end up creating other problems. Of, of course, nothing is perfect. Uh, I, I can I can recognize this. But then people get dispossessed of their land. We, you create much more problems in terms of water when we talk about green hydrogen projects. Um, and these are not taken into consideration. So we are seeing the reproduction of those colonial dynamics. So neocolonial dynamics, we call them. So these are clearly, for me, green neocolonial projects. Um, and I, I and I didn't go into the ownership structure of those projects because those projects are no, are not owned by the communities and workers. They are owned by local and foreign capital, by local and foreign companies, who reap most of the profits. Why the local communities do not get. What they've been promised in terms of development projects, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of employment. In the contrary, some of these projects are losing money. And these, you know, are, are paid by the local coffers, which means more debt for, for these countries. So if, if we don't challenge that mentality, that logic, that colonial logic, extracting the resources, including the renewable energies, if we don't make equitable projects, if we don't change the, uh, the, the nature of the trade and the relationships between North and South, we are gonna go into colonialism in the green era, uh, which, is, which is basically green, green colonialism. And, and I don't know, I, I can give examples, Sarah, of, of, of these projects if, if you want. Um, so, right now, uh, there is a Tonor project in Tunisia. They want to build a big solar plant to export energy. And in fact, there is another project that would facilitate that export, which is uh, building an under undersea cable that would connect Tunisia with, with Italy. Actually, that project is uh, getting some funding from the World Bank from the European Union and from other po- and from the Italians as well because they want to get that green electricity from from North Africa and then you've got another project called X-Links. Uh X-Links is uh, uh, an idea proposed by a um, uh, big British investor. He was the uh, the uh, ex uh, CEO of Tesco, a big uh, Speaking of you know, supermarkets in, uh, in the UK, mm. uh, in in collaboration with Aqua Power, a Saudi 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 company, and they want to also build big solar plants, wind farms, um, to export electricity from southern Morocco to the UK. Export direct export. They are not talking at all about local production, and they gonna use the same Orientalist colonial environmental narrative. Those nets are empty. we got gonna create some jobs. It's a win-win situation. But no, it's not. It's not. Uh, you know, for a country like Morocco, to go much, much more in um, concrete terms, Morocco twenty only twenty percent of its electricity is produced from renewable energy, and it is one of the most advanced countries in the renewable energy sector in, in the region. So the other country like Algeria is just one percent. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, less actually best I would say less.
1: oh yeah so
0: yeah so so w- would it make sense like for Morocco or algeria or Tunisia to produce green uh, electricity or green energy for their own use first before thinking of export mm. uh, these are the questions that the book tries to
1: ask and yeah on. definitely um yeah this is the this is very insightful and I think very important and very well written as well in the book and explained how the local but also international um, kind of is in play with each other. And I'm interested in a bit more about um, this, again, this like just transition and the role of, for example, the European Union in the Arab region. So what is, um, if they are um, doing green grabbing and green colonialism, what would a just transition look like? So oh, yeah.
0: As explained in the book and explained a little bit earlier, uh, big powerful actors like the EU, the World Bank, the IMF, and other powerful development agencies like the GIZ, the German GIZ, USAID, French Corporation and others, you know they are really active uh, in terms of pushing a kind of an environmental climate and energy narrative in the region. They talk about renewable energy, uh, they organize events, uh, they publish reports in various languages including in Arabic. Um, but then their vision of that just transition, or that transition towards renewable energy uh, is biased, is biased and even dangerous, because it does not take into account questions of class, question of race, question of gender, question of power, question of colonial history. It does not talk about justice to court. Even if they use the terms just they do not talk about justice. Their vision is about privatization of everything privatization of the commons, privatization of the land, privatization of water, energy, and even the atmosphere. Uh, we have now these carbon credits. Um, we've been having them actually for almost three decades now as a solution to the climate crisis. And in a way, it's commodifying everything and trying to make profit out of it they do not talk about climate reparations they do not talk about uh, the environmental crimes of big you know fossil fuel companies um so their vision is is as i said it is dangerous uh, and it's about more subjugation more domination more uh, it's about about more accumulation by dispossession uh, and it's about grabbing uh, at 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 the resources And the eu Has been clearly has been doing that. Um, When you look, when you look just at the time of um, the war in Ukraine, with uh, with the Russian invasion of of Ukraine, suddenly all the plans around you know climate targets, CO two reduction of CO two emissions were thrown in the bin. They said we need to shift away from Putin, from the dictator Putin, and go to to others. That's what they've done with the military dictatorship in Algeria. That's what they've done with the military dictatorship in Egypt. That's what they've done with the settler colonial state of Israel. That's what we've done with the authoritarian state of, of Qatar to get more gas from, from these countries. And the Italians did the same thing with, with the Algerians. So the Algerians have been pumping more gas to Italy and Europe this year and at the next, um, and then. In terms of what they are planning to do in green hydrogen, they want, they said, okay, we need to move more to green hydrogen. Uh, they quadrupled, quadrupled their targets from 5 million tons to 20 million tons by 2030. Um, and half of, of that, which means 10 million tons, needs to be imported. Imported from where? Yes, yes. And mainly North Africa. And uh, and other countries as well, because especially Germany is looking to diversify, looking at Namibia, South Africa. But since North Africa is close and it has a bigger renewable energy potential, and there is some kind of um, transport infrastructures in terms of shipping and pipelines, so we, it's the right the right place. But nobody tells you how uh, the surfaces that are needed for these kind of projects. Like in, um, in southern Morocco, in Goulmin, uh there is a project proposed by Total Erento, which is a subsidiary of the French company Total, um, for doing green hydrogen projects. I, I looked at the surface that they, they would like to build all their stuff on, and it is around 180,000 hectares. And I, and I had to look at what that means. It just, I wanted to compare with how much is there? It's more than the surface of the London area. well wow. um, they don't tell you about the water question. Yeah. Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria suffer from huge droughts. They have water crisis. Um, so the water desalination should be going into drinking and local agriculture, rather than for these green. Because green hydrogen necessitates water. You break the molecule of water. We didn't explain that, but. It necessitates huge amounts of water. So why would we prioritize export-oriented green hydrogen projects so the EU safeguards its own energy security and reaches its own climate targets? This is this is a challenge. So that's why we need to challenge these projects. We need to highlight them. We need to name and shame. You know, the company and the people involved. Mm. But also, Sarah, we shouldn't just be blaming, you know, the North and the West. Because the local ruling classes are benefited from these projects. You know, they are benefited. Local capital is always in conjunction or in collaboration with foreign capital. They are benefited. So that's why the question of democratization, and I always come back to it, you know, we need to democratize the political and economic system. We need to talk about sovereignty, and it's not just national sovereignty, it's also popular sovereignty on land, water, natural resources. People and working people need to be involved in this project, as long as they are excluded. The European Union can deal with the ruling classes um, in those countries, and you know, everyone would be a winner in terms of the ruling classes, but the people. They will be sacrificed. Their environment will be sacrificed. Their water will be sacrificed, and um, and, I, I, and I can say say a lot of other stuff uh, around this because European companies are involved in all all these projects, mm-hmm. and their profits are guaranteed. And why, if there is a risk in those projects, the risk should be shared. Mm-hmm. Why are we always putting you know the risks and the costs? To the peripheries of that system and end up creating you know new sacrifice zone.
1: Yeah. Um yeah, I think this is also very well shown in your book that the distinction of who owns what, um who decides what and also what do they do with it, like these um crucial political economy questions. Um we're almost out of time, but I really would like to know what you're working on now and how your future projects are looking like. So bad. That,
0: that I'm so There are always a lot of projects. I'm busy, 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 busy. <laughs> no. no, but you're right. Um, the book tries at least to push those key political economy questions who owns what who gets what? Who does what? Uh, who wins and who loses? So, uh, and in whose benefit are those projects are constructed? And I think this is a plea that we are making to scholar and activists, and researchers, to always put at the center of their work to look at these projects in terms of those questions, to identify the actors, the agents of change, the losers and um, the winners, and and. Uh, And doing that, you're going to document the dynamics of capital. What is capital doing in the environmental sphere, in the green spheres, in renewable energy? Are we going to just reproduce the same colonial capitalist, parasitic, extractivist dynamics? Or are we trying to do better? I feel that we would like to do better. We would like to move towards a more sustainable and just system, because green capitalism is not about greening. No, it's about making profits in the name of being green. It's just greenwash capitalism. It's just the same dynamics. We're gonna create more issues, more problems if we continue the same uh, consumption and production-intensive patterns. In the west and in some rich pockets in the global south we would need more resources and in here you have the critical raw material things that we need to build you know the the electrical batteries the solar uh, panels the wind turbines and and so forth you need a lot of resources so we're gonna destruct more environments we're gonna create more sacrifice zones so we need to ask these questions and that book is not just relevant for the Arab region. It takes the Arab region as a case study, yes, but it has a global relevance because the lessons that can be learned from there in terms of neocolonial dynamics, in terms of commodification, in terms of privatizations, in terms of the involvement of international neoliberal actors, like uh, the World Bank IMF, and IMF, in terms of how people are resist and proposing And I think these lessons can be learned but also the region as we know is a key nodal point of global fossil fuel capitalism in terms of the gulf and other rich fossil fuel countries like Iraq and Libya and Algeria so the region uh, cannot be ignored in terms of global discussions of phasing out fossil fuels and moving away uh, to other stuff. I just wanted to say this before I tell you what, 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 what I'm doing this year. So, I'll be busy promoting this book,
1: era. <laughs> actually, as I said, it,
0: is in, it is in four languages. So, uh, i would be doing a lot of events and book discussions and activities in the Arab world. Uh, actually, I'm going to Cairo in two weeks' time and then to Beirut in, in a month. <laughs> and then I'll go to Tunisia in May so there will be a lot of events in the arab region to, to, to try to push the argument and create debate because that's the idea of the book mm. uh, initiate debate and discussion start thinking about those issues because the book is not is not comprehensive it cannot cover everything so there mm. are some lacunas there are some blind spots there that we need them um, we need to build on and then i'm doing yeah a, a book tour in the u.s um And I'm hoping to do some events, probably in South Africa at some point. But then in terms of publications, uh, I'm looking more into questions of climate reparations, but also um, what a green and just industrialization policy would look like in countries in in North Africa. So these are a lot of projects. I hope I'll, I'll get the time and do at least some of them.
1: Very nice, very nice. This is very exciting. Um, thank you so much, Hamza, um, for your profound and thought-through answers, giving us an insight into your new book. Um, I wish you all the best. Um, this was a podcast in the New Books Network about the book Dismanting Green Colonialism. I'm your host, Sarah Vogelsanger, and I hope you will join next time again.